Welcome to Real Life Church. For more information about our ministry and available resources, visit us online at reallifeankeny.org. Now let's join this week's service already in progress. Good morning. It's a joy to be with you today and um, sing with you and praise God with you and fellowship with you and now open up God's word with you. My aim today is that you would have great confidence in God. Uh, matters hardly matters at all if you have any confidence in yourself. In fact, the less confidence you have in yourself might lead to more confidence in God. So my my aim, my my desire is just this: that by the time you leave today, you would have more confidence in God than when you came in. You'd have more uh, courage, more just banking on God and what He says and who He is. Um, by hearing what Isaiah 54 has to say to us today. Have you ever felt like in life there was someone, maybe you've been in a situation where someone was out to get you. It just seemed like somebody had it in for you. They had you in their crosshairs. Uh, Perhaps you were party of a lawsuit, not by your own choice, but because someone else pursued it uh, against you. And it seemed like the other party just wanted to get you. They just wanted to get you. Or maybe you, growing up, were bullied in school, and there was a bigger kid who was always pushing you around. And every turn of a corner, around lockers or around down another hallway, you were wondering if you would run into this boy. Perhaps even someone you love dearly just seems bent on hurting you. Or perhaps an old business associate or partner somehow undercut you and stole from you and severely hurt you. And it just seemed like they were trying to do this. What if in the midst of these struggles, what if in the midst of these circumstances, when someone appeared to have it out for you, you just knew, somehow you knew. You, had, you just had this confidence that no matter how bad things got... No matter how much the pressure was mounting, no matter how much you felt like panicking, you knew, you just knew in your mind and in your heart that they would not succeed. They wouldn't win. In fact, you would win. Somehow, things would be turned and you would win. What confidence that would give you. What peace that would give you. What joy. Not not a flippant, frivolous, silly kind of joy, but a serious kind of joy. In the midst of what you're going through, you would have it right then and right there. You'd have to face the next court proceeding. You'd have to face that person the next time you saw them. But if you knew that they would not succeed, their plans would not succeed against you, you'd have confidence. You'd have peace. You'd have joy. Well, the last verse in our text this morning says, No weapon that is fashioned against you will succeed. Then it goes on to say at the end of verse 17, This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication is from me, declares the Lord. Isaiah 54 is this amazing chapter. I mean, every every chapter we get to, I think, this is my favorite. No, wait a second. This one's my favorite. Chapter 53 has always been my favorite. And now, all of a sudden, chapter 54 
might be my favorite. The prophet at the beginning, Isaiah, calls forth for shouting in joy. God in His grace has redeemed His people. Remember, we're coming out of chapter 53 where this servant was called to suffer and he would suffer greatly and he would do this in order to reconcile lost sinners in order to make many accounted righteous. In chapter 54, we, th- we see three stunning pictures. We see a barren woman now fruitful. We see a barren woman shouting in joy because she will now have children. And she'll have more children than the woman who at that time had a husband and was able to have children. We see also an unfaithful wife who is now reconciled to her husband who is the Lord. And we see a beautiful city adorned with precious jewels. All of these pictures are of God's grace for undeserving people like you and me. In chapter 54, we see God says he was angry, but it was for a moment. But his steadfast love will endure forever and his covenant of peace will never be removed. It is eternal. All past, present, and future enemies who come against God's people will be thwarted. No doubt about it. Their weapons will not succeed. We certainly see this as the exiles return and God thwarts the plans of those who oppose the Jews. We see this in Ezra. We see this in Nehemiah. In Ezra, the Jews were sent back to rebuild the temple. In Nehemiah, the Jewish people were sent back to repair the walls that were broken down around Jerusalem. However, when we see the return of the Jewish exiles in these two books, which, of course, this was an immediate promise to them, compared with the magnificence and and extent of these promises, we see that it goes well beyond just the return of 40,000 Jewish people to rebuild the temple and repair the walls. That was merely the first installment of these promises, of this prophecy. The fulfillment of this prophecy is seen in the New Testament church. The church being this barren mother, who now is fruitful, with teeming, teeming with children, this bride of Christ, who Jesus himself, the bridegroom, undertook everything to reconcile to himself, and the church being the city the New Jerusalem, all of these are depicted in the New Testament. All of these are depicted of the church in the New Testament. These are glorious promises, amazing promises. One that we could just finish right here and say, go home and think about that for the rest of the day, and you'd be doing well. But to be a Christian means certainly means that the God of the universe has invaded our lives with His glorious grace. The God of the universe. To be a Christian means that He came to us. That He invaded our lives. We didn't invade heaven. We didn't invade His life. He invaded ours. We were lost. We were barren. We were estranged. We were desolate. He came to us. The church is the community of people, once lost sinners who come together around this truth that God, in His grace, has showered us with His amazing love. We are the fruit of the shout at the beginning of this chapter. At the beginning it says, Sing, O barren one, who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud. 
We are the fruit of that cry, of that celebration. For the barren woman is now teeming with children, of which we are. All of this is from our generous God. All of these are pictures of the gospel. Pictures of what God has done. Not what we've accomplished, but what God has accomplished. Pictures of God's complete, radical, glorious grace toward undeserving people. And for that, there's great reason to rejoice. There's great reason to sing aloud. In fact, when we gather here on Sunday, I love the way that Luke and Alyssa and the others pick these songs, put these songs together, because what they do is invariably from week to week to week, they center on this truth of the gospel of our hope. But that's not the end of the story. Even a cursory review, even just a just a superficial overview of the New Testament shows that the Christian life is no cakewalk. It is not like walking in a field of tulips with nice operetta music in the background. The Christian life is a fight. It is a battle. It is a war. And we have a real adversary, a real enemy. The primary character in the New Testament behind this battle is the devil. Now, when we talk about the devil, hopefully you know this, that we can fall, we can fall off the road into two ditches, right? There's two ditches on the side of a road. The one ditch is to think, to think and make believe that everything is the devil. Car breaks down, it's the spirit of whatever, you know? Or we blame our sin on the devil. Everything is a spirit. But the other ditch we can fall into is to basically live as a agnostic when it comes to the devil. We just don't live as though he exists at all. So let's not fall into the ditch on either side. And the safest way to do this is to stick with the Bible. But the Bible seems to show us that the devil has his hands in quite a lot. Though he doesn't, we can't blame him for our sin. He does tempt us to sin, right? For example, the Bible is clear that the devil is like that someone, like that person that maybe came to your mind who is out to get you. And he is always out to get you. And he has no mercy upon you. And his weapons are far more formidable Than any human being. Just to give you an idea of how the Bible describes the devil, and this is going to be review for some, but a good review for us. The devil is called the accuser in Revelation 12.10. He is called the accuser of the brothers. And the weapon he slings is a weapon of accusations and slander. And it's not that he just sprinkles it here and there. But it says in Revelation 12.10 that he accuses the brothers day and night before the face of God. He accuses us night and day. Now the devil is not omnipresent, but he has lots of demons doing his work as well. But he slings accusations and slander against us, toward us in the face of God, before the face of God. He is also called in John 8. 44, the liar and the father of lies who swings the sword of lies and distortion 
and truth-twisting. And oh, how good he is at this. He is also called in, called in that same verse, John eight forty four, a murderer. And he's, a, he's been a murderer from the beginning. He beats with the blows of even death itself. 1 Thessalonians 3, 5 says, calls him the tempter who's always shooting arrows of temptation at us. Always insinuating things, right? He's insinuating things. We see this clearly even in the desert with the Lord Jesus Christ himself. How the devil came to him, tempting him to sin. He's also likened to a lion seeking to devour Christians, just like a lioness would devour a wildebeest. He is likened to an angel of light. He dresses himself in beautiful garb so he can deceive even the elect, even God's people if possible. He no doubt is behind the acts of evil men and persecution. Jesus said that the Pharisees' father was the devil himself. He said, you are of your father who is the devil. So persecution that comes from in any kind of form, from physical pain, physical abuse, to coercion, to threats. No doubt the devil has his hands in it. We see from the Gospels, the way that Jesus went around ministering to people, that the devil causes sickness and disease. Paul speaks of the devil as spiritually enslaving people and even spiritually blinding people. The devil was there opposing God, attacking image bearers of God, namely human beings, at the very beginning in Genesis 3. And he will be there opposing God and all that God does And all that God loves, and especially God's people to the very end. He is real. He is dangerous. He has great power. He has real real weapons that can do real harm. Which is why Martin Luther, knowing this enemy of his own soul, famously wrote, In a mighty fortress is our God, for still our ancient foe, doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great, and he's armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. But what is the promise? In the face of this destroyer and all of his weapons, every single one of his weapons, the promise from our text this morning is, no weapon fashioned against you shall succeed. We have a real enemy, who has real weapons that can do real damage and that really do hurt. And the promise is this. They won't succeed. No weapon fashioned against you will succeed. Inscribed on every sword of the enemy that comes against you are the words, it shall not succeed. Hovering over every legion of demons that attack you are the words, it will not succeed, or excuse me, they will not succeed. And it is this confidence that inspired Martin Luther to continue in that same hymn. That wasn't all he had to say about the devil. Here's what he said later on. He said, and though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. 
The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall, shall fell him, shall send him fleeing. The promise from our text this morning is, whatever weapon is fashioned against you, every one of them will be unsuccessful. None of them will succeed in their evil intent upon your life. How do we know this? How do we know this? Is this just big talk? Is this just a preacher trying to pump us up with some artificial courage? Is this just a matter of mind over matter? If we just think on this enough, then it'll in some way be true because we'll psych ourselves out or psych ourselves into it. How do we know this is true? Tomorrow, when we are surrounded by people, unlike the people here who are kind and loving and will hug us and pray for us, what will happen then? How do we know when we find ourselves in the lion's den again next week that this promise is true? Well, there are four reasons I see in our text this morning why we can bank on this truth, why we can take it to the bank, why we can stand firm on this truth, that in life and even in death, no weapon fashioned against us shall succeed. The first reason is simple. All right? Totally simple. Got it? The first reason is because God said so. Because God said At the end of verse 17, it says this. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. What is the heritage? Well, well, all the promises of chapter 54. But the last one is, no weapon formed against you shall succeed. This This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. And then it says, and their vindication is from me, declares the Lord. Declares the Lord. The first reason we know this is true is because God has said so. Because we are Christians, right? And we believe this is God's Word. And what God's Word says is absolutely true. Albert Moeller says, what the Bible speaks, God speaks. So when the Bible speaks this, we know that God is speaking this. Balaam was absolutely right when he uttered these words. In Numbers 23, God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? God is not like you and me. Sometimes we make promises, sometimes we say things and we have good intentions, but we just don't have the power and the strength and our words sometimes don't um, come to fruition. It's not like that with God. He's not a man that he should lie or the or son of man that he should just arbitrarily change his mind. He speaks and when he speaks, he does what he says he's going to do. He fulfills the words that he speaks. Is there anything as sure as the words of God? So when he says no weapon fashioned against you shall succeed, It is as sure as anything. It is more sure 
than anything. The prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 40, verse 8, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. It will not fade away. It won't wither. It will endure forever. God's words endure forever. And when he sends out his word, is there anything or anyone that can stop it? No, absolutely not. Isaiah 55, 11, God says, My word shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. So the first reason, reason we can know that this promise is absolutely true and we can bank on it, we can stand on it, we don't need to waver on this issue, on this truth, is because God's word has said it. Because God himself has said it. It's come from the mouth of God. He does not lie. His word stands forever and his words are utterly unstoppable. The second reason we can know that this promise is true and bank on it is because God has sworn his eternal love and peace to us. Look at verses 9 and 10. This is like the days of Noah to me. As I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. God has made a promise. God has made an oath. God has covenanted with us his love and his peace. And therefore, we know, we know that this promise is absolutely true. The word for at the beginning of verse 10, you could substitute the word because. So we know that God will not destroy the world like he did in in Noah's day. And we know that his mercy is toward us and he won't rebuke us in his anger because though the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, his steadfast love will not depart and his covenant of peace will not be removed. A comparison is drawn from things that appear strongest and most deeply rooted like mountains. I was in Colorado this last week with a few guys and we saw this big mountain called Long's Peak in Rocky Mountain National Park, 14,300 feet. Massive thing, all right? It'd be the last thing to cross my mind that that mountain might just move, okay? Or might just kind of depart or just go somewhere else might just kind of start moving before our eyes. The last thing I would ever expect is I'm looking at it. God is saying, mountains may be removed. And hills may depart. Or I got that backwards. It would be more likely for that to happen than for him to remove his mercy and grace and love. For us. 
The church's foundation is much more durable and strong and deeply rooted than even Long's Peak or Mount Everest or Mount Kilimanjaro or any of them and all of them because God has made a promise. God has made an oath. God has covenanted. He has sworn. His oath, his covenant, his blood support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. He has sworn. He has made a covenant with us. This covenant that he's made with us, we celebrate once a month when we take communion. And we have this little cup of juice that represents the blood of Jesus. And Jesus at the Last Supper said, take and drink. This is the covenant, the new covenant in my blood. The everlasting covenant. The everlasting covenant of God's peace and of his love and of his mercy toward us. This covenant, you think of a contract, okay? Like a house contract. And there's all these places you need to sign and an initial and... The covenant that God has made with us to be our God and for us to be his people and for him to show mercy upon us and grace and lavish us with his love and give us peace and establish peace now and forever. It is written with the, it's, it's written with the blood of Jesus Christ. It is firm. It is fixed. So the second reason is that God has sworn. He has sworn. He's made a covenant with us. And he does not break his oaths or his covenants. Number three. The third reason. How do we know we can bank on this promise? The third reason is that God is sovereign. The devil is not sovereign. God is sovereign. The devil does not have the final say in our lives. And we don't either. God does. Verses 15 and 16. Verse 15, if anyone stirs up strife, it's not from me. Whoever stirs up strife with you will fall because of you. Every, every, everyone that comes against God's people, it'll be unsuccessful, completely unsuccessful. Verse 16, God says, behold. In other words, listen up. Listen up, I have something important to say. Behold, I have created the smith who blows the coal, excuse me, blows the fire of coals and produces a weapon for its purpose. And I've also created the ravager to destroy. He created the smith. He created the means to make weapons. He created the weapons. He created the ravager to destroy. He didn't just create people who were born sinful, but it says he created the ravager to destroy. And then verse 17, right after that, no weapon fashioned against you shall prosper. No weapon, not one. If this were not one of the bedrock truths that we stand on, that God is sovereign and therefore no weapon 
fashioned against me will prosper. It may appear, if we don't stand on that truth, it may appear that God and the devil are opposing deities, duking it out, and the outcome is still up in the air. But that has nothing to do with Christianity. That's dualism. This idea that good and evil, these two eternal powers, and they're fighting. But it says, in the beginning, God created everything. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. R.C. Sproul says, basically what that's saying is, in the beginning, God created everything. Or as R.C. Sproul goes on to say, in the final analysis, the devil is God's devil. He is not autonomous. We clearly see in the book of Job that the devil seeks permission from God to smite Job. We see it played out in the story of Joseph. Joseph, you know, is this young man, the youngest at that time of his father, the favorite of his father, loved, beloved by Jacob, and all the other brothers were jealous of him and treated him wickedly and with great malice. You might, when you look at that story, you're thinking, what demonic activity is going on in their hearts that they would do this to their brother and trick their father? And yet, at the end of the story, Joseph saw God in all of it when he said this to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. You see, Romans 8.28, for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose is like this banner that stands hovering above every Christian. That God works all things together for good. God is active in everything, working out his plan for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. God is sovereign. The, ne- the devil never does anything outside of God's knowledge and outside of God's allowance or permission. In other words, the devil is real and he is awful. He is terrible. He does real evil, but, it, but he is not autonomous from God. He can do much harm, but only as God permits for his own wise purposes and only as long as God permits him. So we know that no weapon fashioned against us will ever succeed. Not one. No weapon fashioned against us will succeed because God created the devil and the devil can only do what God allows him to do and only as long as God allows him to do it. And when God is ready to snuff him out, and he will someday, when God's ready to snuff him out, he will snuff him out like that. And when it appears that weapons are succeeding against you, and against me. 
God is working out his good purpose. I'm not saying we shouldn't go to God and pray and seek God for deliverance and rescue. We should absolutely do that. But when it seems as though weapons are succeeding, God has not abandoned us. God is working out his good purpose in it. And we need to trust him. We trust him. Romans 8.28 says, again, for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. The very next verse says this, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become like his son, Jesus. The whole context is about going through hard things. In Romans 8, 18 to the end of the chapter. What is God doing? Well, generally what he's doing is he's making us more like Christ. When we go through challenging things, when it, when it seems like weapons are succeeding, we trust him that he's working out his good purpose in our life. Number four, reason number four, we can bank on this promise is that our hope is eternal. The battle we're in in this life is temporary. Our hope is eternal. Amen? Do we have an eternal hope? We have an eternal hope. We can so lose perspective and lose hope And lose a sense of having our bearings in God when we act as though the temporary, this transient life now is all that there is. And it's easy, right? Because we, it's the things that we see with our physical eyes. We can touch things. We can feel the pain in our bodies and we can feel the anguish in our souls. But it's temporary. It's temporary. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, The momentary light afflictions of this life are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. And I would even, I would even venture to say that the difficulties that we experience in this life will only make eternity that much sweeter. I think that's what Paul means when he says in 1 Corinthians 15, death is swallowed up in victory. Even death itself. Death is swallowed up in victory. Verses 11 and 12 says, Oh, afflicted one, storm-tossed, and not comforted. And then he goes on, and then he goes through, and he says, I'm going to build your foundations with precious stones, and your walls with precious stones, and your pinnacles with precious stones. This, of course, gives us the imagery of this city. This city beautifully adorned, decked out in beauty and glory. And, of course, the church is depicted in the New Testament as the New Jerusalem. You may look around and see, okay, I mean, I love these people, but we're not decked out yet, right? We are part of this city now, but here in Isaiah 54, it's pointing, I think, it's, 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 it's giving us a glimpse of what we are by faith and spiritually now, but it's also pointing forward to what we see in Revelation 21. When it, see, it says this city coming out of heaven, the new Jerusalem, 
decked out and adorned and beautiful at the second coming of Christ. Our hope is eternal. We have an eternal hope. Have that perspective when you're going through challenges, when you're facing difficulties, and let that give you confidence that this promise is absolutely true. No weapon fashioned against you shall succeed. This promise is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication is from me, declares the Lord. This is what Christ has purchased by his blood for us. This promise that no weapon fashioned against you will prosper, will succeed. This is the inheritance of the servants of the Lord. This is our heritage. This is our inheritance. The shouting for joy at salvation and this future glorious inheritance that we have, but also this present inheritance that we have confidence that no weapon fashioned against us will succeed. This is a promise that can be banked on. But to whom is this promise made? Is it made to everyone? It's not made to everyone. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. This is a promise made to servants of the Lord. Those who trust in God's vindicating word and work or New Testament language. Those who trust in Jesus Christ to vindicate them, to justify them, to make them righteous before God. Because remember, this is all a gift of grace. It's not something that you have somehow earned or figured out with your own wisdom or worked for with your own strength and willpower and might. This is all a gift of God's grace. It is a heritage given freely by God to us. So it's to those who trust in Jesus Christ. You trust in Christ today? Are you looking to Jesus today for your righteousness, for your vindication, for your salvation? Then this promise is for you. What are you facing today? What is coming against you today? What do you have coming up next week? And you're just thinking, oh my goodness, I am dreading Tuesday, right? We have Monday off or, okay. I am, Tuesday's coming and I need to face this situation, this person. What is it? No weapon fashioned against you shall succeed. Not one. God has said so. He has sworn by His blood, the blood of His own Son. His love is everlasting. He is sovereign in and over all that comes against you. And you have a hope that goes beyond this life, that goes beyond the grave, that goes on into eternity. You belong to a city that is decked out and adorned and ready to be revealed. Trust him. Look to Christ. Now some might say, so how does this truth affect my life? I want to get through this relatively quickly. How does this affect my 
life today? How do I go and step back into the lion's den? How do I face that Goliath? How do I, what do I do? How do I, how does this affect me today or tomorrow? Four things. Quick. Number one, you need to hear this. And I say this with all sincerity and love. For you, and I think about myself too, you are not a victim. You're not a victim. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you, as I look out over you and I say, you believer in Christ, then you are not a victim. Too many Christians ignorant of their standing with God in Christ and his promises play the role of victim. Life beats them up and it does. I suppose this is somewhat the air that we breathe in our contemporary postmodern culture, right? Victimization, victimhood. But you in Christ are far from a victim. You are a victor. Romans 8 says, in all these things, and it lists a lot of things. I think Paul's just, you know, trying to cover everything. In all these things, these bad things that can happen, we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loves us. To overwhelmingly conquer is to be super victorious. So shed off this victim mentality. Just throw it off now and say, in Christ, I overwhelmingly conquer in everything, in all things, now and forever. Number two, fight for faith. I would say we're in a battle, right? We're in a war, we're in a fight. Every one of us, if we're believers, hopefully, at least intellectually, we know that. The primary fight is a fight for faith. It's not mainly a fight to get freed from unsavory circumstances. We do that too. We say, God, deliver me. But our primary fight is to believe what God says about himself, what he says about you and me, and what he says about our present situations we find ourselves in, and his promises to us. So fight your battles with the promises of God, like Jesus did. Like Paul did. Like many of you do. Fight for faith. Number three. Pray boldly for deliverances. When I said earlier, God is sovereign, I do not mean by that. That we should just sit back and let everything that comes at us just come at us. Since God is sovereign, right? He actually has the power to do impossible things that we ask him to do. Right? If the devil's not sovereign, but God is, and we go to him, we plead with him, God, deliver this person or deliver me, then we're going to someone who can actually do that. Because he has all power and he is sovereign. So we should, this should drive us to the throne of grace to receive mercy and grace to help in our time of need. This should drive us to God. This should drive us to our knees in prayer and boldly petitioning God. 
Number four, live courageously. Live courageously. It's easy in our culture now, in our Western culture in America, to just be padded on all sides by comforts and luxuries and security that we just, we don't know maybe what it means to live courageously. We don't have to. But this frees us from this love affair with comfort and ease. To live courageously for God. Not fearing anything that may come against us. Living fearlessly in this world. Living fearlessly before this fierce enemy who despises us and wants to take us down. I I don't know if this story is true or not. I've been quoting Martin Luther a lot. I don't really know why, but all these stories keep coming to mind. Last week and last time I taught and this week. But I remember hearing, may not be true. I've heard it a couple different places. I think there's some truth to it. Martin Luther lying down in bed one night. Here's this wrestling around in his room at the end of his bed. He wakes up. You know, like if you or I, especially if we're in a house by ourselves and we think we hear someone there, it might somewhat alarm us. Gets, wakes up, sits up real fast and sees the devil at the end of the bed. And he says, oh, it's only you. And lays back down and goes to sleep. Martin Luther, before he had his encounter with God, would have never done that. Live courageously in this world that is hostile toward Christ. The Antichrist spirit is at work. We see it. It's not hard to see. And I'm not making that up. I'm not saying the Antichrist is here now. I'm saying the Antichrist spirit is at work. uh, John says that. So he's been at work for the last 2,000 years. Live courageously. The truth of Isaiah 54 is that if you believe in Christ, God's grace of all of chapter 54, God's grace has radically invaded your life. What weapon is the devil wielding against you? What weapon is he wielding against you? Maybe maybe that's not the right question to ask because maybe you don't know what weapon he's wielding against you. You just feel its effects, right? You just feel the effects of being beat up. What is it? Do you feel doubts and fears? Do you feel despair and depression over life and what you're facing in life or over your past? Are you overcome with temptations? Do you have this sense always of condemnation and of guilt and of regret? Look to Christ today who is your righteousness, who is your vindication, who is your victory. We sang the song earlier. God is my victory, and he is here. Christ is your victory. He is your vindication. He is your righteousness. Look to him. And then look that thing in the face, that weapon, and say, it shall not succeed. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the power of your word. I thank you, Lord, that it's not by our might or by our strength, 
that no weapon fashioned against us will prosper. But it's because you've said so. It's because you said, God, these are your words. Your word does not return to you empty. Because your love is all over us in Christ. You have showered us with steadfast love and mercy and grace. You have radically broken in upon us and into our lives by your love and your grace. Because you are sovereign, God. And you do things and we don't understand everything that you do. And we can't see the end from the beginning, but you can. And because we have a hope that is secure in the heavens, a city that awaits us, beautifully decked out and adorned with glory. And that is our hope. That is our future. And all of it is through Christ. All of it we trust in by looking to Jesus. God, I pray for my friends, brothers, sisters here today, that we would look to Christ and we would stand on this truth that no weapon fashioned against us will succeed. Not one. Not one. And we would stand on this truth today and tomorrow, next year, and when we face challenges five years from now, and even when we face death, for death is the last enemy, And all of us will face that one someday, but we'll look it straight in the face and we'll say, you shall not succeed. We pray all this in the strong and powerful name of Jesus. Amen.